The sermon for this morning was prepared by Reverend Reuben Bradenhoff, minister of the Free Reformed Church of Mount Nazura, Western Australia. After the sermon, we will rise and sing in response from Psalm 116, stanzas 1, 3, 7, and 9. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, it could be that you have a favorite Bible passage, words you've memorized, or hung on the wall, or have on a coffee mug. Maybe there's some text you'll often go back to, one of the Psalms, a piece of Romans, or a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Someone once said that the Lord Jesus had a favorite text too. There's no question that his whole life and ministry were shaped by Scripture. The four Gospels show us that. Yet it isn't often that Jesus quotes the Bible directly. Still, one text does stand out in his ministry because he quotes it twice. That passage is Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where the Lord says through his prophet, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. On one occasion, Jesus has to defend himself against the Pharisees, who were scolding him for eating with tax collectors. Christ quickly turns the criticism around and says to the Pharisees, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. In other words, Jesus says that for all their criticism, the Pharisees have problems of their own. Namely, they have a fine outer crust of religion while their inside is hollow and loveless. On another occasion, the Pharisees rebu rebuked Jesus for how his disciples plucked some grain on the Sabbath. After defending the twelve, Jesus turns attention to how it was actually the Pharisees who were living out of sync with God's law. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Maybe a couple of references aren't enough to make Hosea 6 verse 6 his favorite text, but it does show us a key idea of Christ's ministry. He seeks true faith. He emphasizes the need for a holy and merciful life. God had commanded Israel to do sacrifice and ceremony, but if it never touched the inner part of a person, then it lacked all value. For this theme, Jesus could just as well have quoted from another of the minor prophets, the prophet Micah, from chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. For there the same truth shines brightly. What does God really want from his people? Is it Israel's burnt offerings and oil? Does God desire merely our prayers, our money, and Sunday psalms, or something more? I preach God's word to you on this theme. With what shall I come before the Lord? First, we'll see the reason for the question. Second, the wrong answer. And thirdly, the right answer. The reason for the question. 
This morning's text is well known, and at first it sounds so positive. But here, as always, we have to consider the context. More exactly, why is the prophet saying this? And the reason is not so nice. Micah was a prophet from the countryside of Judea, and he was called to address especially the people who were living in Jerusalem. For him, it might have been intimidating to face the crowds and bring this message. But uncomfortable though his words might be, he simply has to speak. As he says in chapter 3, verse 8, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Chapter 6 is part of that message. This chapter has been called the a covenant lawsuit, for it's as if the Lord is taking his people to court, and he's arguing against them. The Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel, verse 2. In, the, in this lawsuit, the Lord is the plaintiff, the one suing. Micah is his spokesperson, and Judah is the defendant. And the people of God are accused of idolatry, injustice, and false worship. It's a fair trial. The people are even given the chance to make a counterargument. O oh, my people, what have I done to you, says the Lord, and how have I wearied you? Testify against me, verse 3. In other words, did God give them a reason to stray? Had he been unfaithful, or was it his doing that they'd become bored with holiness? No. Their disloyalty has no excuse, because for so long now his people have received his grace. The Lord stands up in court, and he gives testimony of this. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. He had delivered them from the very worst of misery. And that was just the beginning. Led through the wilderness, sustained with bread from heaven, defended against all their foes, shepherded by Moses, brought into the land of promise. In chapter 6, God calls on them to remember all his mercies. He calls on them to count every reason why they could give their attention to worshiping God truly, genuinely, lovingly. It's the same way that the Ten Commandments begin. They remind us of our blessed redemption, our deliverance in Christ. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Hearing these words every Sunday, we know that God's law isn't meant as an impossible burden on our lives, as a joyful but as a joyful duty. A person who's been saved through none of his own contribution, rescued graciously from death, such a person has a world of reasons to come to God with thanksgiving. That's the core of Micah's message for his people. Beloved, isn't it even more so today? For the Father sent his one and only Son to this earth, by the cross, he delivered us from our sin and condemnation, and by his resurrection, he gave us life and glory. 
Today, we know that God's covenant lawsuit was brought against Christ. It was Christ who was judged and cursed and killed as the covenant breaker. He took upon himself all our charges and our guilt. He who was without sin was made to be sin. He did it so that we can go free, so that now we can walk humbly with our God. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Isn't that always the question of one who's in covenant with God? Isn't that the response you'd expect from someone who's been saved by grace? What should I give to the Lord for all His mercy toward me? How shall I bow before Him? How can I honor Him more? Because of the Lord's goodness and grace, it's what you and I should ask every day of our lives. Micah asks the question, but really, Judah knew the answer already. They had the law. They had heard the prophets. This book is only seven chapters long, but Micah has been warning them for decades. Yet, they have been listening. Sorry, they haven't been listening. They still thought God was happy with them, happy with their perfect church attendance and their generous contributions. But they had forgotten the kind of response that God is asking. We get to point number two, the wrong answer. So had Judah rejected God? Did they no longer believe in Him? Not at all. They wanted to have God in their corner, especially with the Babylonians making noises about going to war. They wanted God as one of their allies. This is what they said back in chapter 3. Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. God had become like the life insurance policy that we have in a filing cabinet. The Lord was there, just in case the unthinkable happened. The people wanted to preserve that security. So what did God want from them in return? With what should they come before the Lord, and what will keep him happy? The people's answer is to pay a very high price, but they do not pay correctly. They focus on excessive giving and on elaborate displays of worship. They think that God is interested especially in the cost or beauty of what they bring. And isn't that how people have always thought of it? From the days of Micah to the days of Jesus and the Pharisees to today, many a person finds a sense of satisfaction with his various activities in religion. After all, he's done what is expected. She's kept to a certain standard. I was at church, wasn't I? Didn't I pray for my meals and put money in the bag? and send the kids to a Christian school? Didn't we have a good home visit this month? I've done my bit. But what's the real reason we come before the Lord with our sacrifices and tithes? Why have you come to the temple, to the house of God? This is what Judah forgot. Or what's the purpose 
of our prayers and songs? What's the motivation for our gifts? We could forget this, even as we sit in church this morning. What's it for? Who are we trying to please? The elders? Our parents? Ourselves? The Lord teaches us that true sacrifice has a special character. Right worship is marked by something simple, yet essential. It goes back all the way to Moses. Think about what he asked the people of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. And now, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Do you hear the clear echo of that passage in the words of Micah? What does the Lord require of you? He wants the heart, the soul, the very being of a person offered in love. Sure, the Lord commanded that sacrifices be brought to the temple. That was his law. But strip it all away, and what is true offering? An acceptable sacrifice is one with a genuine motive, the urge to glorify God. It arises from a heart that has repented from sin. A right prayer is offered by the person who relies on God's grace because that person knows that God's grace in Christ is his only hope. But in their blindness, the people were offering everything except the one thing God wants, which made all Judah's answers to the question so fundamentally wrong. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? That's what you would expect. God's requirements in the law begin with offerings in which the sacrificed animal is consumed by fire. And if you wanted to go one better, you'd bring calves a year old. The law permitted the sacrifice of calves that were as young as eight days, pretty small. So if you brought a yearling, this was a little bit more of a sacrifice. By one year, with all your time and attention, this had become quite a valuable animal. Maybe you can tell where this is going. There's a progression in these gifts, from a simple burnt offering to one a little more expensive, a calf a year old. The people wanted to do better than the law prescribed, to be sure that it was enough. But is that really what God wanted? They could read Samuel's words to King Saul. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed better than the fat of rams, 1 Samuel 15. For, for as King Saul knew, it's always easier to meet the outward expectations than to truly walk in God's ways, just like it's easier for us to keep doing what we need to. Monthly donation, Bible reading at supper time, prayer at bedtime, Lord's Supper attendance. You can do all that and still have a life that isn't being walked humbly with God. Never mind, the people say, how about some more rams and more oil? 
Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? The escalation of gifts continues because a person seeking to do right for his own security is never sure when he's done enough. Imagine that whole herds of rams were slaughtered at the temple. Would this be sufficient? Or shall we end endless gallons of oil? Or what if you never have a moment's rest because you're on every committee possible? Or what if you work 70 hours a week so that you can double your contribution to church and mission? What if you only read the Bible and nothing else? What if you never swear and never steal and always speak, to, speak politely to others? What if no one can ever find fault with your public conduct or the behavior of your children. Surely that will be enough for God. The people of Judah were probably frustrated at Micah's words. What more could they have done? Why wasn't God satisfied? But they've missed the point. No gift, no habit, no tradition can substitute for a sanctified heart or for a life that's been reformed. If you don't love the God of heaven and earth, then nothing else counts. If you're not motivated by His glory, then checking off all those boxes is an empty exercise. After all, aren't these things already God's? As the Lord said in Psalm 50, the world is mine in all its fullness. So will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats, offer to God your thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Does the Lord really need our time or our talents or our 10%? He doesn't. But when they're offered in gratitude to Christ, these things are precious. When our lives are committed to Him in love, the Lord counts them a real treasure. He gladly receives what we give, imperfect as it all is, when these things are given in faith. But first, the rest of Judah's answer. It goes from the exaggerated to the depraved. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This was a pagan practice where they'd sacrifice a firstborn child to secure the blessing of the gods. It even did happen in the land of Israel. It's repulsive to think that this is what the living God requires, but why not? It's the logical extension of the same idea. If it's important to impress God, then you better give up the very best you have the most valuable thing that you can imagine, your son, your child, or your own life. But it's all so wrong. God's grace is free, and His love cannot be bought. And so the Lord simply desires our response of grateful worship and sacrifices we make in love. Once more, we should understand this better than Judah. For we know that God has already arranged for the full price to be paid. He presented his one and only son 
To borrow the words of our text, he gave his firstborn for our transgression. He presented him for the sin of our soul. By that one sacrifice, he's made it possible for us to have a true and lasting peace with God our Father. So let's be clear every day on what motivates our lives as Christians. Let's know what should be behind our proper worship, our good behavior, our devotion to the kingdom and service in the church. Our inspiration is Christ. Our reason in all of this is the perfect gift of love, of God's love in the Lord Jesus. We do it for him. So we're back to that question. What does God require? Or with what shall we come before the Lord? For our answer, we could show how each and every passage in Scripture applies to our lives. It'd be an enormous list. Besides the Old Testament, we'd have to add the teachings of Jesus and the words of the apostles. Altogether, it'd be an overwhelming set of requirements. But remember, they all come back to a couple of basic laws. The greatest commandment and the second one like it. Indeed, Micah is simply calling the people to return to what they know. And what is that? The good that God requires is real thanksgiving. Those in covenant with God must have a true and living faith, a faith that shows itself each day by an act of love. This is exactly what he has shown you, O man, says the prophet. That Hebrew word translated man is significant. It's the word Adam, and it's used in Genesis to describe Adam, the one formed from dust of the earth. It's a word that speaks of our lowliness before God. We've got nothing original or valuable to offer because we're only his creatures, made from clay. What can we ever give to God that he could repay, could repay us? Yet God has shown us what is good. Verse 8, he's shown us the better way to live. We can try to find our own way, but we'll only meet with disappointment. But God's way is good, and God will confirm that his way is good. He'll crown obedience with blessing. With that in mind, let his people do justly. When you look through the book, you'll see there is a key, this is a key theme in Micah. The people of Jerusalem were taking advantage of the poor. They were robbing each other and trampling the weak. But our God is a God of justice, and he wants to see justice done on this earth. That is, he wants every relationship between us to be shaped by his word. From day to day, we're surrounded by people. We have relationships with so many of them. The question is, if we believe in God, do we always strive to treat others fairly? Are we fair to our co-workers? Do we treat our spouse with understanding? Are we fair to our children? Gracious with our brothers and sisters in the church? Do we seek their good? Do we even put their interests ahead of our own? 
do we have an eye for those who might be suffering and who need our defense? Do we do justly? So let God's people love mercy. The word mercy is much more than having compassion for the weak. Literally, it speaks of a loyal love, most often describing God's covenant faithfulness to his people. God is attentive to the promises he's made, and he fulfills them all in his grace. He is merciful. So what should his people be like? We should be people of loyal love. If we've made promises to others, we must strive to keep them. If the Lord's given us a responsibility, we must strive to honor that commitment. Yes, what does God require? That we walk humbly with our God. That's the broadest of these requirements. And it's such a rich image for our communion with the Lord. Walking. Picture going on a nice walk with a loved one along the river or through the forest. When you walk with someone, just the two of you, you're constantly attentive to him or her. You listen when he speaks. You're mindful of where she steps. You both stay on the path that's chosen. You might even join hands and walk together. The same is true for us and the Lord. He's in heaven and we're on earth, but Micah says we can walk with him. That means having a constant awareness of where God is leading you. It means being always attentive to God's voice in the word. What does he want you to do? Where does he want you to go? Is your hand resting in his? Beloved, would you say that you're going with God, or have you left him behind, wanting to do your own thing? Have we forgotten the sound of his voice? The thing he requires is that, he walk, is that we walk with him and do so humbly. Micah emphasizes once more the need to have a knowledge of our smallness. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O oh God, you will not despise, Psalm 51. Humbly we walk with him, but expectantly. For he is our God, says the prophet. The prophet has been challenging his audience. You know this, God. You so often have enjoyed his aid. He redeemed you from Egypt. He's made you his own. Now the prophet says it again. Walk with your God, for he's yours, the one you can depend on. Don't try to make it alone, but walk humbly with him. It's quite simple. This is what God requires. This is what life in covenant looks like. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's simple. Yet no one in Judah should think they can meet this standard. Nor should any one of us think that we can meet this standard. The answer is not to try harder, to do more, to get busier, because that will never be enough. Yet there is good news. 
the one true sacrifice has already been presented. All of the requirements of the covenant have already been met. Jesus Christ came before the Lord, his God, and he presented himself in perfect obedience. With his precious blood, he's atoned for every sin. He's covered every failing. So one more time we can say it. Christ gives us every reason to come before God with thanksgiving. Christ gives us every reason to make Micah 6, verse 8, our life's work, a text we often return to as our calling, our purpose, our privilege. In Christ and for Christ, let us fulfill that good requirement of the Lord, doing justly, loving mercy, and walking humbly with our God. Amen.